Hello everyone, it's Dr. Sam. I'd like to welcome you to my Eye Clarity Podcast. This is a show that offers cutting edge information on how to improve your vision and overall wellness through holistic methods. I so appreciate you spending part of your day with me. If you have questions, you can send them to hello at drsamburn.com. Now to the latest Eye Clarity episode. Thank you so much for joining us on the Connecting Minds podcast. Oh, thank you, Christian. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Can you tell the listeners what is uh, your background and uh, your specialties? I was trained as an optometrist and uh, studied things like child development. And uh, my early in my career, I worked with kids who had the spectrum disorders. I actually trained at an institute called the Gazelle Institute in New Haven, Connecticut. And this was a multidisciplinary uh, facility, uh, used to be affiliated with Yale University, and uh, learned how to evaluate and treat all kinds of children and adult with learning problems. I also developed programs in hospitals to work with traumatic brain injury, did research in that area and uh, developed a form of physical therapy for the eyes. Uh, Also studied and became a craniosacral therapist because I saw the connection on a muscular skeletal level to the eyes, we could talk about that. I also studied aromatherapy, naturopathic medicine, Chinese medicine, and energy healing. So as an optometrist, I look at the eyes as a whole body uh, system. Right. That's fascinating. I I am interested in all of those things that you mentioned. And, you know, I hope one day to have some capacity and time to delve into each one of them in more depth. But to start with, um, I suppose, actually, I'd like to touch the, um, the child side of things. So can we, let's start at the beginning. What, in a human being, what prevents proper eyesight from developing when when growing? Well, it really starts in utero. And uh, one of the things I've learned is what happens in gestation, what happens at birth, and what happens in bonding critically affect the sensory motor development. And if there's been any birth trauma, for example, this has a huge effect on our visual development and our overall brain uh, motor uh, integration. Some other things that affect our eyesight would be nutrition. So if there's a biochemistry imbalance, Mm. if we've been exposed to heavy metal toxicities or other toxicities, these are all uh, impediments that don't allow the normal developmental arc that young children need to go through. And of course, today with the digital screen time exploding, children are not able to do the same play time where they're exploring their body in space. They're just given a a screen, a, a phone, and they look at it. And this prevents the spatial visual development, peripheral vision, depth perception, inquiry, that you and I probably grew grew up in. And I think this is a huge issue in terms of normal sensory development. Yeah, you know, this is, I recently stumbled upon something called, um, uh, it's called Zing Performance. And basically it's designed, you do do like a, a test for visual acuity and so on. And the outcome of that is you, you get uh, individualized exercises that you perform that stimulate uh, the vestibular system and cerebellar development. Mm-hmm. So that I read that that's really good for mm-hmm. kids. Um, and a lot of them have to do with like eye tracking and mm-hmm. balance. So could you maybe explain how if as a child is growing up, if these, uh, the vestibular system, mm-hmm. if that's not stimulated, how can that actually, mm-hmm. you know, 
create impediments in other in, in the acquisition of other skills. Yeah, you're talking about one of my favorite topics, vestibular health. And the inner ear is made up of these little tiny stones or bones that are part of the triangle, which I talk about, called the eyes and the ears and the feet, our proprioception. And when we become over-focalized in our vision, this begins to desensitize the vestibular processing. That is why we do a lot of vestibular stimulation, rolling, spinning, uh, swinging, and in doing that, it stimulates the vestibular functioning, which then helps connect our visual tracking and our reading. And so the vestibular dysfunction, I call it vestibular insufficiency, occurs when we don't get enough active movement, especially in gestation, when we're floating in the amniotic fluid and our peripheral vision mm -hmm. is stimulated. So any program out there that stimulates the vestibular function is going to improve our visual processing. And a lot of people, a lot of kids, if they don't access that kind of movement, it really shuts down their visual development. So vestibular visual have this very intimate marriage that then goes in with proprioception. And this leads us to a really full life of understanding and processing ourselves in the world. Interesting. Yeah, I've been doing this program for maybe three weeks now, and some of the exercises were quite challenging. Not the eye tracking ones, but mm -hmm. around coordinating movements, like spinning your 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 one arm forward, one arm backwards, and so on. Um, and I I I'm not sure if it's the placebo effect, but I have a feeling there's some type of improvement already. I, I feel it. It's like a qualitative, very qualitative type of improvement. Like for example, I was driving the car, and I seem to be a lot, a lot more aware of the road, but without that internal anxiety as normally I would have had before. For example, right. So, which kind of brings me to the next question. So, what kind of, what should a parent know for you know when their kids are growing up? How, how can they know what the right type of vestibular stimulation exercises are for their child? Well, part of it depends on watching their infant or toddler's behavior. I feel it's important to do a lot of tummy time. I know that's controversial, but there's a whole set of movement patterns called the primitive survival reflexes. And these are movement patterns that actually start occurring in utero. And one of the main purposes of the reflexes is to help the newborn adjust to coming out of the birth canal. These reflexes are controlled by our brainstem, our survival brain. One example would be the moral reflex, which is our startle reflex, being able to go into different environments and be able to handle all the changes that are going on. So if there's been any birth trauma, C-section, forceps delivery, <clears throat> stress at birth uh, in any form, I would take your child to a developmental specialist, maybe an occupational therapist or a developmental or behavioral optometrist like myself, and we can evaluate the visual system as it relates to the whole body. So some movements that are really important would be creeping, crawling, lots of crawling, and then doing the things like swinging and spinning, mm. you know, going to the, the, the park and sliding. So in other words, I call it adventures in gravity, where you're stimulating the vestibular system by working <laughs> with different postural uh, situations. <clears throat> and if you do those things, most likely your child is going to be very curious. And I know that can be stressful for parents, um, you know, because they're going over here and going over there. But it's precisely what they need to be able to control their body in space. And I define learning in school is partly being able to control your body. And in doing that, you have to go through these developmental motor processes that start with the primitive reflexes and then they go into vestibular exploration, bilateral integration, and then finally the visual motor skills. Those come a little later. So that hierarchy of development of reflexes, motor, fine motor, is mapping what you're talking about, cerebellum, prefrontal cortex, 
And, you know, when you stimulate the neurons, you, when you refire the neurons, you rewire them. So there's a neuroplasticity that's occurring mm -hmm. when you offer these new movement patterns to anybody. This is what I've seen in my therapy that creates incredible improvements in people's vision because we're offering them new patterns outside their normal, repetitive, uh, deteriorating closed system of, you know, what we do robotically. So um, I hope that's helpful in understanding. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating stuff. Um, what about just before we kind of move on to the next topic, because I have a great interest in autism. I've written a book on the topic and uh, peripherally from that also some, some of that is extending into ADHD and other children's mm -hmm. health issues. So in terms of your work with uh, kids on the spectrum, with kids with ADHD, can you tell us what, how does improving the eyesight affect the, you know, other conditions? You know, I consult at an autistic facility in Albuquerque, New Mexico called Kid Power. And uh, it's, it's an institute that they were seeking me out because what they felt was the eyes were the missing link in connecting the brain to the body. Now, this is different than a regular eye doctor where you go for an eye exam and you read the distance chart. That's actually called your eyesight. But what I evaluate is vision. And vision is how developmentally the eyes and the brain and the body work together. So what I've learned at Kid Power is I'm evaluating the visual system in the context of the overall child's uh, processing, auditory processing, motor processing. And in bringing the visual system into it, because it's one of our most dominate, dominant senses, it turns a switch on. It, it connects them in a way where they go, oh, I actually see something in front of me. Oh, I can actually start recognizing letters and words. Oh, I can start engaging my vision as it relates to my balance and movement. So it's phenomenal that within a few minutes of my activating their visual system, it's kind of like I'm turning it on, that they get so engaged in a very different way. So I'm here to say when they're, you know, when you see autism, there there's so many different kinds of autistic behaviors. And they're in that spectrum, like what you say, autism to ADHD, Asperger's is in that. So my piece is bringing in the eyes. It's not the total answer, but it's part of what is missing. And I think in the education with OTs and PTs and so on, bringing the vision into it, not eyesight, vision can be a game changer in getting that autistic child more online with engaging to themselves and engaging with the world. I mean, it makes complete sense because from, from some of the, the, the research, we know that uh, autistic children's brains develop in a different way, you know, in, in utero mm -hmm. and when they're growing up. So if you can, so certain regions are, are more wired together, others are, are more disconnected. So if you can, any intervention, be it, you know, with vestibular stimulation or, or anything with the vision, if you're repatterning and rewiring regions of the brain, I can see that better connection in between specific regions can have, you know, immediate effects. Yes. Positive effects. Yes, very true. So uh, another, I guess this is, I ha my, let me just briefly set the context. So my, I have a lazy right eye. So astigmatism in the right eye, and I'm farsighted. Same as my mother, she's got a lazy right eye. Same as my grandmother, she, uh, you know, God rest her soul, she passed away uh, two months ago. She also had a lazy right eye. Now, my dad's vision is perfect. My sister's vision is perfect. So how, how much of this is her hereditary? How much of it is not, uh, Dr. Byrne? It's a great question. I think I'm going to bring in the work of epigenetics, which says that environment informs the genes to express in a certain way. I also think uh, Rupert Sheldrake talks a bit about something called the morphogenic field. 
And what this is about is mm. that ancestrally, and especially on the mother's side, many of these eye conditions are passed down energetically. I mean, you were living in your mom for nine months. She was informing you in a certain way, and you picked up on that. And then the grandmother is also influencing you in utero as well, energetically. And so it's, you know, it's partly environment. There is a genetic, you know, predisposition. There's a morphogenetic, there's an epigenetic. And it's also based on mirroring and, you know, watching what your mom is doing, what your grandmother is doing. So it's all of those things. And it's difficult to pinpoint, but that's how I that's how I think about it. And uh, I want to also say you can improve your lazy eye and farsightedness and astigmatism at any age. Age is not a deterrent. And we could get more into some strategies on what you could actually do to re-educate how the two eyes and the brain and the body are working together based on this adaptive response that you have absorbed in the astigmatism, farsightedness, and lazy eye. Yeah, you know, I'd love to explore that further, but let me just say before, you know, you, you kind of discuss that at length, um, I love Rupert Sheldrake's work. In fact, the reason I asked you how much of this is hereditary and not genetic is because he's convinced me that heredity is not solely based on the genetic material. Heredity, heredity can be these, you know, morphogenetic form-giving fields. That's why I've, I've stopped saying genetic so much, and now I say hereditary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. so that's that's kind of the. It's fascinating that you weave that uh, mm -hmm. Sheldrake's work in there. Um, but yeah, so please please discuss that further because um, I had laser eye surgery maybe I don't know five years ago or so, and uh, and just in the in the right eye. And my vision has improved a little bit, but I still can't, I, I still am very dominant with my left eye. So how would I go about, you know, re, rebalancing the, their dominance? Well, we want to blame faulty vision on the eyeball. It's the eyeball's fault. And really it's the programming behind the eyes that causes the eyes to change. So function changes structure. Now you've got a couple of things going on here and when you do any kind of refractive surgery, you're changing the prescription in the eye, but you're not changing the programming that caused the prescription. And sometimes this can create a little confusion in the brain. But no worries, you can still overcome the laser surgery. But what it's going to take is for you to do some stimulation with the right eye that engages your brain and your body in a self-awareness uh, process. And when you do that, initially, what's going to happen is you might actually start seeing better out of the right eye. And then if you continue with some of the physical therapy exercises, the left eye and the right eye are going to match up in a different way because both eyes are going to be now in a different relationship with each other. So in terms of the specific exercises, there's an exercise that I use, which is more in an internal exercise called eye dialogue. I developed this many years ago. And what it is is that you talk to each eye separately and there's certain questions you ask each eye, like how old does each eye feel? What's the marriage between the two eyes? Like that would be an interesting question for your right eye to answer and your left eye to answer. They may not even be married. So in, internally, if they're not married, the external vision is going to represent that. And it isn't like you're just wearing a patch eight hours a day. That doesn't work, by the way. That That is a, a caveman medicine type of thing that I never recommend. It's very traumatic. But by wearing the patch over each eye a few minutes and doing, some, that for a while. and doing some internal uh, questioning. And then when you take the patch away, you're going to notice that the two eyes may be trying to work better together. 
We could also do some things like color and light therapy on that right eye. Uh, we could also think about maybe adding a lens part-time and a contact lens possibility that might give you better acuity and that could help match up the left eye. Uh, there also may be some vestibular stimulation things you could do while patching the left eye. So there's a lot of territory you could use and you know, improving the lazy eye does not have a statute of limitations. You know, in the old literature, they say, well, by a certain age, if you don't improve the vision in the, the lazy eye, it'll never get better. That is a myth. That is completely false. So if you started to really do some active stimulating with the right eye, connecting your inner vision with your outer seeing, you would profoundly see some changes and improvements. But I would caution you that some emotions may come up, some memories may come up, some traumas may come up, and that's all normal energy that's being stored in that right eye. And also, you might want to change the label of, instead of calling it a lazy eye, you might call it the more sensitive eye or the eye that sees in a more intuitive way. You know, we, we get labels and then we live out the diagnosis of the label, and so maybe it isn't yeah. lazy. Maybe it's the eye that see, is the more visionary eye. We don't know. Uh, so there's a lot here to unpack, but boy, the upside would be incredible for you. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I absolutely love this kind of not labeling um, people uh, like as someone is, is autistic or is diabetic. I actually prefer... And I know may, many people may disagree that I, I would prefer to say someone has something, has a condition, mm -hmm. rather than they're defined by the condition. Now, mm -hmm. I, I know in, in, in the autistic community, there's a lot of disagreement with that. Uh, and the, a lot of people would prefer to be just called autistic. But in general, with anything like this, like diabetes, whatever, I think you're right. It's, it, because the, the, when you label someone or yourself as something, you tend to live out. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Just wanted to add that there. Um, okay, so this, there's quite a lot of stuff to go here. Um, what would... Okay, so you, you have some exercises on your on your website now that you, you already discussed the eye dialogue, which I definitely am, you know, going to look into. How would one know which... Because there's quite, quite a lot of exercises. How would one know what are the most bang for their buck in their particular instance? Well, the good news with that is that when I created my brand and my website, what I took is 30 years of my physical therapy exercises, and I created 90-day programs, three-month programs for every major diagnosis. And so if you go on my website and you type in lazy eye, you're going to come to a page that will have video blogs on lazy eye, just philosophy and how to do the exercises. But then you actually have the 90-day program. So you do like three exercises a week, and then you move on to the next three. And each program is specifically tailored for the diagnosis. And it's all free. It's all available. I've done hundreds of video blogs. You could even Google lazy eye Dr. Byrne. You'll get a lot on Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, I felt about four years ago that I wanted, to take, I wanted to take this on social media. And so I studied how to do that. Mm -hmm. And through my podcast, through video blogs, you know, through all different kinds of avenues, I've created, you know, probably thousands at this point where you can just go online and learn about a condition. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's, it's all there for you. And uh, also, if you have any questions, I do a, a Facebook Live Q&A. I do a Clubhouse. Clubhouse is a new social media app that I'm on. I do a room every Tuesday mornings. So there's lots of access to me that's free if you have questions, and I try to answer cool. them online if possible. That's awesome. So talking about, so there, you already kind of dispelled a couple of myths around, you know, for example, patching the eye, or that there's an age limit at, at which point that astigmatism can be improved. What other common uh, misconceptions are, are there that folks need to be aware of? 
Wearing your glasses full time weakens your vision. That's a myth. It's really important to take your lenses off in non-demanding and non-threatening situations and experience the world of blur, especially from an emotional attitude place. But you're obviously doing this where there's zero visual demand so that you are safe. Another myth is that just because you get an eye diagnosis like cataracts, glaucoma, macular degeneration, or dry eye, you don't have to live out the diagnosis. There are so many natural, integrative, holistic methods to reverse eye conditions. Another myth is that you don't have to live out your eye diagnosis and you can improve your vision at any age. I've got so many patients in their 70s and 80s that are reversing wet macular degeneration, cataracts, reducing the need on bifocals, and so on. The last myth I'll talk about is that diet has absolutely nothing to do with your eyes. Just the opposite. If you clean up your diet, if you do a, a cleanse, if you you know eat mostly plant-based where you're getting a lot of antioxidants, you boost your microbiome, your eyesight is going to get better. No question about that. Right, which kind of I had a we're going to discuss that later. What are the some of the most important nutrients for eye health? Well, it's really simple. We just do the rainbow diet of vegetables and the berry family in the fruit world. So when you're talking about the rainbow, you're talking about you know A B C D E things like avocado, asparagus, um, you know Brussels sprouts broccoli, carrots, uh, you know, so it's basically looking at the rainbow and what is in season. You know, I put red and orange and yellow uh, bell peppers, the green leafy vegetables, kale, spinach, and chard. The berry family is mm. so helpful for retinal circulation, healthy fats and oil. So I like to dehydrate and use raw nuts and seeds. Uh, again, if you're eating animal products, getting some kind of seafood, the salmon, uh, very good for astaxanthin, which is an important carotenoid for the macula. So if you follow those general guidelines, you know, even the Mediterranean diet, there was a study that came out in the American Academy of Ophthalmology that said that eating a Mediterranean diet reduces your risk for macular degeneration including foods that contain glutathione and vitamin C can reduce your risk of cataracts. For dry eye, making sure you're getting collagen-boosting uh, nutrients, enough fats and oils, checking in with your thyroid health. So there's lots of connections, and I'll say one more, that in Chinese medicine, I've learned that the liver meridian affects the eyes. So if you're dealing with toxicity, mercury amalgams from dentistry, head trauma, you know, all of these things are going to impact your eye circulation. And the name of the game is improving your oxygenation and your hydration in your eye tissue from the front of the eye to the back of the eye. If you can achieve that goal, you're going to avert any eye deterioration and eye disease. That's what it comes down to. Fascinating. So in terms of actual supplements, I, I for example, I, I take an absolute crap load of supplements. Just look at, around the house, there's supplements everywhere. Um, but I noticed since starting to take lutein and astaxanthin, I, I am pretty sure it's not a placebo effect. Uh, I've been doing it maybe now four months at this point. I definitely feel an improvement. So uh, maybe, could, would you discuss the top, what would be like your top five supplements for eye health? Yeah, you know, I've done research uh, over the years. I have had 30 years of experience with patients, and they finally begged me to create an eye supplement. I've, I've created two. And there are two things you look at. You look at, the obviously, the quality, and the second is the dosage. So I would say the top three for macular health would be lutein. You want to get about 16 milligrams a day of lutein. You want to get about six milligrams a day of zeaxanthin. Those are the plant carotenoids. 
And then astaxanthin, you want to get 12 milligrams a day, and that's that's an um, animal seafood. You can get it through microalgae. That's that's going to be 12 milligrams a day. You know, for vitamin A, you're looking at somewhere between five and 10,000 IU's. Actually, the B complex, I have put that in my eye vitamin because it's really helpful for corneal health. And then you've got the herbs like bilberry, which is great for eye circulation, taurine, which is an amino acid, ginkgo, which is really important for um, vascular health and optic nerve health. So if you're suffering glaucoma or optic nerve inflammation, ginkgo, taurine, and of course, then your omega-3s are critical. You can add things like quercetin and resveratrol. Those are also antioxidants. They're very helpful. And don't forget the trace minerals, magnesium, selenium, chromium. Okay, the trace minerals are so important mm-hmm. for our eye health as well. So that's just a broad brush, you know, but uh, certainly, again, I've created lots of video blogs where I will spotlight, say, for example, glutathione. So glutathione is the master antioxidant in the body. Mm. It helps us with detoxification. And uh, when you have low levels of glutathione, it affects many negative things, but it really affects your eye health, and you have a higher risk of developing cataracts. Mm. Eliminate sugar. This is another one that really wreaks havoc on your eye health, among any other things. Eat a diet that's anti-inflammatory. So stay away from those foods that create more inflammation because if you're in, in stress, it's going to feed that inflammatory response and create more free radicals. So those are, again, some of the generalities. Uh, and, you know, if people follow those, they're going to boost their eye health, just like what you're experiencing. That's not a placebo. You're getting better circulation to the focal part mm-hmm. of your eye that's involved with detail and that's probably why you're feeling and seeing a difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think so. And in my case, I'm probably thinking of, of, of upping the dosages because I'm at the computer so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you also, I, I also noticed you have an MSM eye drop uh, uh, product. What is the? Um, I know it's a sulfur, sulfur-containing. What is the um, the difference between taking that uh, in the eye as opposed to as a supplement? You know, I made this discovery oh about ten years ago because I was using MSM powder to help people with their inflammation, their joint health, their collagen health, and I said, well, what about if we put MSM in an eye drop? You know, this sulfur—it's an organic sulfur molecule. We know that sulfur is the third leading trace mineral found in our body. It's really important for many cellular uh, reactions. And it's like sticky flypaper. So anything that attaches to sulfur gets flushed out of the body. It's anti-inflammatory. It is lubricating, moisturizing, and brightens. And I wanted to use an eye drop that actually had some therapeutic value. You know, most of the eye drops that are on the marketplace actually make your eyes worse. You know, there's a lot of preservatives, chemicals. You know, if you get into pharmaceutical eye drops, it it has a lot of side effects. So I was able to create, to build this eye drop, and I started using it on my patients, and I created two percentages. And the lower percentage helped with eyelid inflammation. You know, that's one of the major causes of dry eye. When our eyelids become inflamed, this inhibits the glands to produce the proper tears that cover the cornea. And because I'm a somatic therapist, a body worker, I would have people wash their hands, put a little MSM in their eye, and massage their eyelids. Who would think you'd actually touch your eyelids? But that combination helped reduce the eyelid inflammation. And then in the lower percentage, I would do something called the eye bath, where they would put the MSM in the eyes and they would actually, you know, do several drops. And that was incredibly lubricating and moisturizing to the cornea. And then on the 15% MSM, because it's so collagen producing, this was a game changer for people who suffered floaters. So when you suffer floaters, this is a collagen imbalance in the vitreous gel. 
And as we age, the vitreous tends to shrink. It dehydrates. So if you add some collagen-boosting eye drop like MSM 15%, you have a chance to dissolve the floaters. And I'm saying a chance because floaters are, there are a variety of different reasons why we develop floaters. We can't just say it's this or that. And so it's not the magic bullet, but certainly I saw hundreds of my patients come back to me and say, you know, my floaters are less using the 15% MSM. So I'm at the stage now mm -hmm. where, you know, MSM is valuable in supporting optimal eye health. From an FDA standard, standard I cannot say that X treats Y because it's not approved by the FDA, just like a lot of these natural products are. Yeah. But what I've observed is it does yeah. support uh, better lubrication, moisturization, and reducing inflammation. Try it out. It's, it's pretty potent. And, uh, you know, all my customers on my web store get very nervous when I sell out because they wonder, am I going to be able to get more? But don't worry, I've got a great <laughs> manufacturer, so we're, we're good. And, uh, you know, my, I, I've, I've gotten my customers and patients addicted nice. to the MSM drops, but they're super great. So uh, thanks for asking that question. <laughs> do, you, do you ship international? Yes, I do. I ship internationally. And uh, so we've got a great web store manager and she's awesome and we've got a great team. So we do our best with customer service. But, uh, yeah, we do ship internationally, so if people want to order, uh, yeah, just contact us. And we're running sales all the time, so want to want to get those to people. And, so, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. And uh, can you take those, because my, my fiancé um, wears contacts, can you actually take those with contact lenses? You sure can. You can use them for contacts, with contacts in. Nice. If you're taking glaucoma medication, just wait 15 minutes before you put the MSM in. If you've had cataract surgery, the MSM is totally safe with the new lenses that, they're, or that are put in the eye. So as long as you are not allergic to sulfur, uh, and most people, what they get confused with is sulfur and sulfa. Sulfa drugs are different than the sulfur molecule. But I always say start slow, you know, start with the 5%. Maybe just put a drop in the eye, see how it feels. And they can sting a little bit. So you have to get used to that. And the stinging is only three to five seconds. But, you know, if your eyes are oversensitive, then, um, you know, start slow. That's, that's the way to go with it. Yeah. Okay. I'll definitely give those a try. What about um, I, on another podcast that I heard you on, you were talking about grounding or lack of lack thereof uh, as contributing to floaters. Could you maybe uh, tell folks what is grounding and how can that contribute to floaters? It comes from the work of earthing, earthing.com. And when we are inundated with wireless and EMFs all day and all evening, and now we've got the 5G, which is really packing a lot of information in a very concentrated way, uh, this definitely, well, we'll just say it could have a negative impact on your health, your wellness, your circulation, and your eyes and vision. So in the grounding, because most of us are not getting out in nature, going outside in your bare feet and sticking your feet in the, 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 the dirt on grass is really important as a way to ground yourself from all the EMF absorption that we're all dealing with. And another technique is called earthing, and it's from a company called earthing.com, and they actually sell things like sleeping mats and grounding mats. So for example, I have a grounding mat below my computer, and I plug it into the wall, and when I put my feet on that, it actually helps release some of the EMF pollution that I might be absorbing as I sit in front of my desktop all day. So I think that getting back to nature, grounding into the earth, and we, we then return to something called the Schumann wave, the Schumann resonance, which is about 7.8 hertz. It's a very slow waveform, and it runs from the earth's ground up to the ionosphere, 
and it actually helps regulate our endocrine system and our nervous system. Now, if you don't want to know about the Schumann wave, just go take a walk in the park or take a walk in, in the woods and notice how your nervous system and breathing start to return to a more harmonious state. That's the Schumann resonance or the Schumann wave. This earthing is sometimes a way for us to also help remind us to get back to that slower wave. You see, with computers, we're going at the speed of the computers, and in doing that, it's compressing our tissue. We are going to the speed of the email, of the re reaction, the response, and we lose our own internal compass of slowing down. And this is where earthing, going into nature, not only does it balance our nervous system, but it also may contribute to a healthy microbiome, which is our bacteria in our gut, which reflects our immune health, our lymph health, and our, again, our ability to de-stress. Yeah, that's, you know, that's so powerful because, uh, especially in terms of eye health, we, we only are, are kind of conditioned to think it's mechanical and the machine mm -hmm. is just getting worse with age. That's, mm -hmm. that's it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we were, we were away for a, a few days up in close to the mountains here, the hills, but we, were, we went hiking and stuff. And like, I, I'm coming back from that environment to this computer environment, and even just the worrying of like the air filter, my computer, you know, the, the humidifier, like just I can, those frequencies, they're, they're kind of jarring and disturbing for me, at least today, maybe I'll probably get used to them over the next few days again. But um, it, it's, it's amazing like how, how much things open up, um, being more in that kind of natural environment uh, even my eyes, I, I felt like they're better today. And today I'm already mm -hmm. squinting at the computer for the last, you know, four or five hours. Oh, yeah. I'm already feeling like pressure building up. Yeah. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. But, um, uh, uh, wait, wait, I, I, I forgot what I was going to ask you later. Um, I lost my train of thought. Well, we were talking about... Okay, grounding. yeah, so that, that, that's exactly okay. what, what I was yeah. going to talk about. So, yeah, so, so being stuck at the computer, so being looking at things constantly at screens, how, what, what can us folks that work on a computer all day, what can we do in between, let's say, every hour or, or every day to kind of reset some of the damage that is occurring? There's several things that you can do. Number one, make sure you're wearing blue blocking glasses after 6 p.m. because that will help block that chaotic, high-energy blue light that's coming at you constantly. You can even get a, a blue screen, uh, blue blocking screen protector on your compu computer and phone. But you want to make sure you're hydrating enough because there's a tendency to get dehydrated. And on a visual level, it's really important to look up and out, you know, at least every 15 to 20 minutes so that you have a window that you can look out because that relaxes your eyes and releases them from being in that visual confinement state. The MSM eye drops are great to use throughout the day. That's another great hydration. And there's an exercise that I recommend that people do called the palm hum. And what it is, is you rub your hands together for about 10 seconds. You cup your hands over your eyes. Your eyes are closed. You breathe in through the nose. And when you exhale, you make a humming sound and you keep your mouth closed like this. Mm -hmm. you do six or eight of those, what that's going to do is that's going to put the sound right into the eyes and it's going to open up the compression in the eye muscles and it's also going to moisturize the eyes. Your breathing is going to be deeper after you do those six or eight hums. Sound is one of the best ways to open up compressed tissue and your hands are like tuning forks that are directing the sound into the eyes. So doing that several times a day will reset you from the intensity that you're in. And then last but not least, get 30 to 60 minutes of natural sunlight every day. Get out there, walk, breathe. There's an exercise I do called sun gazing, where we do that at sunrise and sunset, where you allow the sun to uh, absorb into your eyelids. You can do it with eyes closed. 
Natural sunlight, not only do you get the vitamin D, but it also changes your mood and it resets the light in the eyes. You know, light is a food and we are heliocentric. We go towards the light, just like the plants. And we're told to be afraid of sunlight. And that's another myth. You know, obviously, if you're out there eight hours a day, you want to wear a hat, you want to wear protection, but you need to get 30 to 60 minutes of natural sunlight every day as part of your overall health and wellness protocol. So those are some of the, you know, the broad brushes. Again, I've done lots of video blogs on how to take care of your eyes with digital time, but that's that's a broad brush there that, that will help people. Go ahead. I'm right, sorry I interrupted right. you. Yeah, yeah, of course we have the we have the links to your podcast and your website for folks that you know want to uh, delve into it a little bit further. But just just on that topic of sun gazing now, that's another maybe another misconception you can dispel if needs be. Is it actually dangerous to to look into the sun? Let's say at at at, at sunset or sunrise. Well, you need to tune into yourself to see what is your sensitivity level. There's, I just had a great time. I, I went to Hawaii. Uh, Hawaii is like my second home. So I was able to go there uh, last month and I did a whole video on sun gazing while the sun was setting, which was really fun. And one of the things that I brought out in that video was that when you start to go outside at sunrise or sunset, first of all, you're greeting the day, it's matching your circadian rhythm. You know, in the morning you're saying hello, in the evening you're saying good night. So just being in that circadian rhythm is really helpful for your overall health, your pineal gland and so on. But what I recommend is going out there, sunrise, sunset, and maybe at first put your back to the sun. And you're still gonna get the benefits of the sunlight and then as you begin to acclimate, maybe turn 45 degrees towards the sun with your eyes closed, see how that feels, and then maybe completely turn towards the sun with your eyes closed and start there. And then if that's okay, maybe open your eyes for five or 10 seconds and look indirectly towards the sun at sunrise and sunset, and then close your eyes and see how that is. So you build up slowly. And if you do it that way, you're going to get the benefits of the sun without damaging your eyes. Only after you feel like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm used to this now, then you can start doing the sun gazing with the eyes open, maybe 30 seconds, see how that goes. You know, I did a video blog a few years ago where people looked directly at the solar eclipse and I got a lot of you know, oh my goodness, I'm losing my eyesight. Mm. You really have to look for a long period of time to do permanent damage. You know, the eyes and the retina yeah. have resiliency. We do have resiliency in our eye tissue, but it's your lifestyle, your diet, your nutrients, your stress, your trauma, your toxicity that then creates that lack of resiliency in the eyes. So it's a total lifestyle uh, perspective mm in taking care of your eyes. It isn't separate like we're told by the eye doctor, which is a reductionistic model. Our eyes are interrelated and interconnected to our emotions, our psychology, yeah. our spiritual energy, and so on. So we need to treat them as part of an integrated whole. Yeah, I think just looking at the English language, the way we say I, as in myself and yes. eyes, so similar as well. That has to do with how we perceive the world. That's um, uh, a little bit deeper, though, than uh, you know I intended to go. But uh, regarding actually looking at the sun, if, regarding that light coming into your eyes, what are, is it like an epigenetic uh, benefit? What actually happens that's so beneficial? Twenty-five percent of the light that enters the eyes goes to non-visual pathways. So that means part of that light is being stimulated by the, the blood flow, the arteries and veins in the retina. So that light is gonna be transported throughout the entire body. That takes about 40 minutes. And 25% of that light that goes to the non-visual pathways will go to the hypothalamus, the pineal, the pituitary. So it's activating 
not only the endocrine system, but also the nerves. So all the nerves are getting the stimulation of the light. Now that 75% of the light that's stimulating the retina, part of the reason why we develop light sensitivity is because those retinal cells become desensitized to the light. And it could be due to stress. It could be due to how functionally we're using our eyes. And so by using color therapy, breaking the, the white light down into different colors, you slowly can begin to resensitize the photoreceptors to the light so that you don't have the light sensitivity anymore. One more point I want to make. Light is a two-way street, street. So when we absorb light into the eyes, there's eventually an output of radiance. You know, part of our health is how light our light bulb is. You know, you see people and go, wow, you're glowing, you're radiant. That's because they're able to absorb the light and they're able to radiate the light out. And that's a, that's a reflection of our overall health and wellness. That's our biofield, which then informs our physical health to, uh, you know, to be, have good circulation and, and so on. So I don't know whether that answers, but that's kind of why light, so light is the main you know, entry point into the body. It's funny you should say that what we absorb, you know, what we absorb, we emanate because <clears throat> that's literally what I was looking at you today. I was looking at some of the pictures on your website. I'm like this dude, like, looks like he is, you know, he is radiating. You know what I mean? This, uh, this kind of the energy I got about you. So you definitely are probably um, eating your own medicine there. What you're talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about uh, now. Uh, I don't know anything about color therapy. But I do have a red light here that I, mm -hmm. I don't use as much as I used to in the new office. But I used to use that daily and I would even you know, look at it and, and keep it close to my eyes. Can you tell folks, <clears throat> excuse me, can you tell folks listening what, if any, are benefits are there to red light and what other color therapies should one consider? Well, red light therapy, as you know, produces... <clears throat> Uh, health in the mitochondria and the ATP. So it does many positive things. And depending on the type of infrared light source and the manufacturer, it can be very beneficial for eye conditions. Again, you have to start very slowly. You have to check with your manufacturer and see if you can actually use it. But infrared light is awesome. I, I love it. And not only just for the eyes, but for pain, inflammation, so many things. What I'm referring to is something called the rainbow method in color therapy. And this is where we have color machines or color masks where you look through these different colors. And it's interesting, the colors that you don't like, you have an allergy to the color. And what I mean by that is you have an allergy to the vibration of the frequency. So if you start spending more time with the colors you don't like, it's like a homeopathic healing where it opens up something in your health that vibrationally you were allergic to, that you were deflecting. It could be a trauma, it could be stress, who knows. And so we do something called the rainbow method where you look through all the main colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, asking yourself what you see and what you feel. For you... I would patch your left eye and I would do that rainbow color through your right eye. I think it would be profound to ask your right eye what I see, what I feel, how do I relate to each of the colors. That in itself could be a game changer for you. So the color therapy has been around for thousands of years. The Greeks, the Romans okay. have used them. Uh, and so using it on the eyes, what it does physically is it opens up your peripheral vision, it can improve your depth perception, your memory, your balance, your focus, your cognitive health. So it's a powerful medicine that uh, can improve your vision and health. You know, I just remembered that I, I use a, an app called Iris that uh, reduces a ton of the, the blue light and as the night approaches it even more it, it reduces the brightness and the blue light even more but I remember there was a setting on the app to do like to tint your screen it's like to do color therapy and you could do like a tint of a certain 
uh, color. So I'm actually going to try that to see if I can I can integrate that into my daily mm-hmm. into my daily work. Try so the thirty so try, that, try the thirty day try the thirty days challenge. Uh, do your right eye day one, your left eye day two, both eyes day three. And not all blue light is bad for you. It's the blue light between 405 and 455 that comes off digital screens is the high energy damaging light. But once you get higher than that, 480, 470, 480, we actually use blue light as a way to reduce inflammation, pain, open up the peripheral vision, release trauma. So you need to know the distinction between the different frequencies of blue. Not all blue light is, is bad for you. Okay, I'll definitely be looking more into that. And just one more question uh, before we kind of wrap up. You said earlier that the thyroid can affect eye health. Can you maybe, I know it's a massive topic, but can you tell us how can hormonal imbalances contribute to, to eye problems? So in terms of the thyroid gland, if you either have low or high thyroid, what it can do is it can cause a dry eye Uh, condition. It can also cause a condition where the eyes bulge out. You know, if you've got Hashimoto's disease, you probably know that your eyes are dry. And so you need to take extra care of, you know, what are some of the things I can do to support better eye moisturization on a natural basis. Another connection is adrenals. So if you have high cortisol levels, your adrenals are working too hard, your peripheral vision is going to start tunneling and your pupils are going to be too dilated. So that's the sympathetic nervous system overworking. You're going to have light sensitivity and narrow vision. So those are two connections. Third one would be low estrogen levels in women who have a higher incidence of dry eye syndrome. So that's another connection. So your endocrine system highly affects your eye health and you know, you connect the dots there if, you know, your endocrinologist or your eye doctor is not putting it together. Believe me, they're connected. Right. Yeah, that, you know, when you talk about the high, let's say if your sympathetic system is in overdrive, i.e. your adrenaline and your cortisol are up, it makes sense that your peripheral vision would you know, be diminished because you're more around, you know, running away from something, which is, you need tunnel vision for that, or running towards something to kill it, you know, like a, like a deer or whatever. So it completely makes sense that that would kind of wreck, wreck a, um, you know, peripheral vision and other kind of aspects of, 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 you know, more exploratory vision, for example, seeing kind of the details in, on the trees and the flowers. Totally makes sense to me. Sure. Okay, Dr. Samburn, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Before we go, can you tell the listeners where they can find your resources on the internet, please? Web Website, www.drsamburn.com. Dr. Samburn on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and Clubhouse. You can DM me, you can email me, happy to, to answer your questions. And uh, you can take a look at my workshops. I have a workshop coming up May 4th. That is a month-long intensive. And uh, so lots of ways to connect with me. Christian, I want to thank you for all the great questions and your interest. And I uh, hope we see each other again down the road. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll have all the links to, to your stuff in the episode show notes and on the website. Okay. And, you know, again, like you, you've opened my eyes to so many things. Um, I'll definitely, definitely be doing your, your 90-day uh, course, 30-day challenge with the color therapy. I, I know this is, this is something that, you know, the, the eyes are like such a pivotal way to, to experiencing the world, you know. So it's, it's so important we take care of them. So thank you for the work that you do. You're welcome. All right, take care. Thank you for listening. 
I hope you learned something from the iClarity podcast show today. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave a review. See you here next time.